Hello and welcome my microbe friends to another episode of The Microbe Moment. The show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm Tess. And I'm John. And welcome to February, everybody. Can you believe that we're already in month two of 2021? It's the month of freezing your butt off and shoveling if you are in a four-season zone. But no matter where you are in the U.S., Canada, Ireland, Netherlands, or the U.K., it's Black History Month. Woohoo! And we are definitely celebrating some amazing black microbiologists in today's show. Yeah, I gotta say, before we start, Microbigals, I really only knew of a few microbiologists like Robert Koch or Louis Pasteur, but man... There are so many microbiologists that change the world and are often not mentioned. So yeah, I'm really excited to share with you all just a few details of the most prominent black microbiologist in history. But first, what are we drinking today, Tess? Today we are drinking something that has nothing to do with anything that we're talking about, but everything to do with freezing our butts off in New England. I call it the winter mint julep. Mint has long been prescribed for medical reasons as far back as medieval times. Some believe that mint julep was invented by slaves working in the cotton fields in Mississippi, but may also have origins in Persia. But even today, it is a southern tradition and the drink of the Kentucky Derby. Our version, however, is far from the southern classic as it doesn't contain any bourbon whiskey. Ours is simply a shot of Dr. McKilligutty's and some hot cocoa. And if you're like sort of a health nut like we are, then it's protein hot cocoa, which is hot cocoa made of protein powder. For those of you who don't know, Dr. McKillcuddy's is a brand of liqueurs out there. And the one we're using today is a peppermint liqueur. It's also the only one worth getting, in my opinion. That's very true. And it's so delicious. You definitely got to give it a try. All right, let's get started. Right. So as we said, in honor of Black History Month, Today, we will be highlighting 10 prominent black microbiologists. I will share five and Tess will share five. That's right. So we have 10 black microbiologists that we're trying to give you in a super fast podcast. So we will not go into any great detail in any of them, but hopefully give you enough information that if you're interested, you can go find some more information. We also have done blog posts on many of these microbiologists, so you can find them there as well. Without further ado, John, why don't you get us started? All right, let's start with William Augustus Hinton. He was born to two emancipated slaves in Chicago, Illinois in 1883. He was a two-time recipient of one of the most prestigious merit-based awards, the Wigglesworth and Hayden Scholarship. (laughs) I love the name Wigglesworth. However, Hinton had to forego his aspirations of becoming a medical doctor because there were no medical internships at the time willing to take him because of his skin color. But jokes on those people because he got to join a much cooler field, microbiology. He was unable to get a paying job, but he was able to volunteer at the pathological laboratory at Massachusetts General Hospital. He developed two syphilis tests in a time where syphilis was a major problem in the U.S. One of them was even named after himself. He later became the director of the laboratory department of Boston Dispensary and chief of the Wasserman Laboratory 
of the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. They later named the lab after him and is still the Hinton Lab as of today. Yeah, I was looking into that a little bit more today and the Hinton Lab had some sort of drug scandal a couple years ago. So it may not be quite as prestigious as it once was. But that's still pretty cool to have a whole lab named after you. Very true. So William Augustus became an instructor in 1918. Spanish flu! Yep, the Spanish flu was rampant at that time. By 1921, he was teaching bacteriology and immunology. And in 1949, he was given the title clinical professor. It took over 40 years for him to get a professorship. Which is absurd. Even today to get a full professorship it's only about a decade well after you go to primary school and then secondary school and then middle school and then high school and then four years of undergrad and sometimes two years of a master and then five to seven years of a phd and then two to five years of a postdoc and then you have to fight everybody and to get a actual interview so you can get a professorship but then once you get that you got 10 or so years until you get a professorship so yeah i guess about 30 years It was like 30 years on top of 30 years, Mm -hmm. almost like 60 years. Well, he did get his medical degree in just three years, so he shaved some time there. Yeah. But still, absurd. Unfortunately, on an even more depressing note, Hinton turned down awards like the NAACP and American Society of Microbiology. He feared if he showed his face and people saw that he wasn't white, it would discredit his work. That's really unfortunate, I have to say. We'll end on a little quote from him. Race should never get mixed up in the struggle for human welfare. I 100% agree on that. Moving on to number two, Jane Hinton. Yes, the daughter of William Augustus Hinton. Another reason to love our boy William Augustus Hinton. He was so cool and a great father. Oh, well, at least from what I can tell anyways. He was the father of Jane Hinton, another prominent black microbiologist in history. She was born on May 1st, 1919 in Massachusetts. Her father really emphasized the importance of education and went so far as sending his daughters to Europe, a place that he thought was less racist than America, so his daughters could get the best education that they could. In 1939, Jane Hinton received a bachelor's degree from Simmons College in Massachusetts and later joined her father at Harvard University. She became an assistant researcher for Dr. John Howard Mueller. And if the name Mueller and Hinton is setting off little bells in your head, and if you're a clinical microbiologist, it should. We are totally getting there. Just wait. In 1941, she helped co-develop the great Mueller-Hinton auger. For those non-clinical microbiologists, Mueller-Hinton agar is a non-selective, non-differential media, which means it grows many different kinds of microbes. So, you know, I got to quote the original paper, which was entitled A Protein-Free Medium for Primary Isolation of Gonococcus and Meningococcus. Here's an excerpt. It is desired to report the development of a transparent reproducible medium continuing no heat-liable material such as a serum, which is sufficiently stable to withstand autoclave sterilization and storage and which will support satisfactory primary growth of either meningococci or gonococci. That's a way to lay down the problem. Those old papers don't mess around. Yeah, they get right to the point. I really like how she says, it is desired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you couldn't tell by that little excerpt, the media was created so that they could plate and grow Neisseria microbes. But today, we use it mainly for antibiotic testing. Because the media is loose, it allows antibiotics to diffuse through the auger and seep in. So the way this is done... 
or at least the way that I did it way back when, is you take a microbe, you're interested to know what the antibiotic susceptibility is, and you smear it all over Mueller, Hinton, Auger. Without doing anything, you would expect when you come back in a day, the plate would be completely covered in a concept we call a lawn. You grow a lawn of the microbe. But then you put these little discs that are infused with antibiotics on the plate. Where I worked, we had this cool little stamp thing and you like placed it on the Petri disc and pumped it and then seven to eight different antibiotic discs that were already infused with the perfect amount of antibiotics were placed perfectly on the Petri dish. So once these discs are on the plate, they will diffuse into the auger, their antibiotics in which they hold. If the microbe is resistant to the disc, it will grow right up to the surface of the disc. If, on the other hand, the microbe is susceptible, you will see a zone of clearing or a halo around the disc. So then you know what antibiotic will help your patient and what antibiotic to prescribe. Okay, sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent, but back to Jane Hinton. During the war years, she worked in the U.S. War Department, and in 1949, she received her VMD. That's a veterinary medicine degree. And this year, Alfreda Johnson also received her VMD. So both these women go down as the first black women to get a VMD in America. So she worked with human diseases, she worked as a vet, but she still had one more final career switch in her life. In 1955, she became an inspector for the Department of Agriculture to investigate disease outbreaks in livestock. She never married, she never had kids, but she did love animals and her garden. She retired at 41 and spent the next 42 years being a proud fur baby mama and a gardener until she died in 2003. Sounds pretty nice, huh? Yeah. She retired really early, too. Yeah, she retired at the age of like 40 in her 40s, and then she lived until her 80s. So who's number three, John? All right. Number three on our list is Dr. Harold Amos. He is one of those people that just has a contagious smile. Have you seen a smile, John? Yeah, every picture I've seen of him is him like a massive smile on his face. Yeah, like looking at the pictures and we'll definitely post them on social media. You just really can't help but smile back. He just seems so friendly and approachable and had a great taste of music, I gotta say, but we will get to that in a bit. Uh, I really feel like I could have been friends with Dr. Harold Almas. His microbe moment began with a book, a book by the great Louis Pasteur. We do love Louis Pasteur. We do. However, young Amos's love for microbes may partially stem from his hatred of the family goat, as Louis Pasteur used goats for experimentation, which I guess young Amos wished he could do to his goat as well. Come on, Amos. What did that goat do to you? Nothing. Actually, goats can be a little annoying, I guess. Yeah. I guess screaming and spitting. <laughs> wonder if he had one of those goats that just screamed all the time. So Harold Amos was born the same year William Augustus Hinton became an instructor at Harvard and the same year the world faced the 1918 flu pandemic. Wow, that was a busy year for microbiology. It sure was. He was always a top student. Smarty pants. And graduated summa cum laude from Springfield College of Mass in 1941. Hey, that's the same year Jane Hinton developed the Mueller Hinton auger. Sure is. He went on and fought in World War II, but as soon as he could, he went back to the books, getting both an MD and a PhD from Harvard Medical School. Wow. Wicked smarty pants. Super smarty pants. And in 1946, Harold almost had his fanboy moment. 
He won a Fulbright Fellowship to study at the Pasteur Institute in Paris. Ooh la la. Yeah. How cool would it be to study in the footsteps of your microbe hero? Oh my God. So cool. I know. And he was like in love with Louis Pasteur since his childhood. Yeah. And although he couldn't physically meet him, he could meet him partially through his institute. Yeah. Study where he worked. Then he was really living the dream. Weekdays, he would study E. coli metabolism with George Cohen. And on the weekends, he was rubbing elbows with great jazz musicians of the time, including Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald. Just sign me up for the Jelly Institute because I'm extremely jelly of him right now. He gained full professorship much faster than William Augustus Hinton. He worked at Harvard for over 50 years, and when he retired, he was still not done. He also became the director of the Minority Medical Faculty Development Program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Sounds prestigious. This is very prestigious. He also worked pretty much until his death in 2003. What a workaholic. Yeah, he did a lot with his life. Next up at number four, we have Dr. Jessie Isabel Price. She grew up in a single-parent household during the 1930s. Not really a great economic time for anyone, is it? Not at all. Her mom worked endlessly to put food on the table and encouraged Jessie not to get a job ASAP like what was expected of Jessie at the time. She encouraged Jessie to instead get an education. Like Hinton, Jessie had to forego her aspiration of becoming an MD due to costs and racism, but again found a much cooler career in microbiology, I gotta say. She saved up some dough for grad school by taking a job that would alter her life forever. She became a researcher at the Poultry Disease Research Farm and Veterinary College at Cornell. And so began her lifelong career as a fowl researcher, but not like fellas in bad fowl. As in the bird, she became a duck doctor. Yeah, and so the next hero in Jesse's story is Dr. Dorsey Bruner, who from all accounts that I have read was a very supportive mentor to Price throughout her career. In 1959, Jesse Isabel Price became Dr. Jesse Isabel Price after receiving both her master's and PhD from Cornell. Now, if you don't think being a duck doctor is exciting, get it? Get it? Uh, you just quacked me up, don't you? <laughs> Just think of the food you ate this week. Eggs, chicken, turkey, they're all staples of across many diets. And the way many chickens and turkeys are raised, the areas are cramped and unsanitary. If one bird gets sick, it won't be long until the whole flock dies. This increases food prices, making such products unavailable to some. So being a duck doctor may not sound glamorous, but Dr. Jesse Isabel Price helped save thousands of birds, ultimately helping to keep food on thousands of plates. So, what exactly did she do? She developed a vaccine for Pastorella antipestifer. In the 1950s, Pastorella antipestifer killed 10 to 30% of ducklings, costing the industry some $250,000 a year. In today's money, that is about $2 million. A lot of money. In addition to Pastorella antipestifer, Price also researched avian cholera, which I didn't even know was a thing, and also avian tuberculosis. She became the chair of the Pre-Doctoral Minority Fellowship Ad Hoc Review Committee of the American Society of Microbiology, Whew, that's a long one, as well as the chair of the Summer Research Fellowship and Travel Award Program. She was definitely giving back to her community. As a final fun fact, Jessie became a breeder of corgis, enjoyed photography, traveling, and music. She died only just a few years ago, in 2015, of Alzheimer's. Oh, wait, I got one more. 
I think you'll all agree she was impeccable. <laughs> we have absolutely no egrets on this segment. Ta-da-ch. Next, we're going to talk about Dr. Ruth Ella Moore. She is our number five and my girl, Dr. Ruth Ella Moore. She was born at the turn of the century before women had the right to vote and some 50 years before the civil rights movement. But this pioneering woman would live through both of these historical events and make history herself. Yeah, she definitely did. She was born in Columbus, Ohio in 1903. And at the age of 30, she received her PhD from Ohio State. She taught hygiene and English at Tennessee State College for some time. Can we please bring back some hygiene classes to America? Yeah, I can think of a fair few who would totally benefit from that. Faux show. She worked with another prominent black microbiologist who is not on our list, but certainly could have been, Dr. Hildress A. Poindexter. When Poindexter enlisted into World War II, he left a spot for head of Department of Bacteriology open. And who better to take up the spot than Dr. Ruth Ella Moore? As her first decree as head, she changed the department name from bacteriology to a much more inclusive name, microbiology, which encompasses all of our little microbial friends. She was primarily a tuberculosis researcher, but also dappled in oral cavities, antibiotics, blood tests, and immunology. She was the first black woman to get a PhD in bacteriology and the first black woman to get one in natural sciences. She was also the first black person to join the American Society of Microbiology, even attending a conference in 1932. Unfortunately, at that time, America was so segregated that she was not permitted to stay in the same hotels or eat with the other conference attendees. She also made most of her own clothes, with many pieces of her wardrobe popping up in a 2009 edition of the Sewer's Art Quality Fashion and Economy magazine. Booyah! Jack of all trades, wasn't she? Yeah, and I looked at many of her dresses and I would totally wear them. Oh yeah? Oh yeah. Well, I'm wicked sure we are not going to fit all ten into one show. What do you think, John? Um, no, I don't believe so. Well then, Microbial Nation, that will be the end of our show for now. But please do join us, same time, same channel, next week for part two of our Black History Month series, where we will share with you five more black microbiologists that changed microbiology forever. Oh, and if you would be so kind, please click the link in the show notes to fill out our five-minute listener survey. It would really help us and know how we can make your experience better. You can find the survey once more at the listener notes or at microbigels.com slash survey. So, who was your favorite so far? Was it William Augustus Hinton, the syphilis man? Jane Hinton, the inventor Mueller Hinton Auger? Harold Amos, the Francophile jazz enthusiast? Dr. Ruth Elamore, the fashionista extraordinaire. Or the impeccable Dr. Jesse Isabel Price. You can tell us by sending an email to microbigills at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media at microbigals. If you found this podcast valuable, please share it with a friend so we can be friends with them too. We hope you enjoyed listening. And we hope you now have a new appreciation of how much black lives matter in microbiology and everywhere. Don't forget to feed your microbes. Bye. Bye.